The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Tension was brewing in the Ludwig's marriage. While still living in Eckhart, Indiana, Cecilia retained the Heil and Baker law firm to file for divorce. After her death, attorney W.B. Heil revealed the grounds for her case. Albin, quote, had a ferocious disposition. If angered, he would become almost insane, end quote. From the Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of a Jealous Husband by Gary Sisnecki. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy. Like to make you comfy, cozy. Welcome back, Murder Bookies, to Episode 31, The Wife-Killing Primer, Part 2 of my trilogy on the Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of a Jealous Husband by Gary Sisnecki. I'm your host, Jill, and I have a true crime book club from the greater Philadelphia area and love discussing true crime, where I apply my 30 years experience as a psychology educator who studied and taught about serial murder. I turned my love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so I can share these stories with you. Each month or so, I will discuss a book that I pulled off my murder shelf in the first two episodes. I'll tell you the story from the author's point of view, throwing in a few odds and ends. In the third episode of the series, called Second Cast, I'll delve into the path not taken, threads not pulled, adding analysis, related materials, and updates to the case since publication. If you haven't listened to the Potato Masher Murder, Episode 30, Part 1, A Dinner of Embers, you really need to before continuing because there are spoilers galore. Here comes a quick recap. We met the murder victim, statuesque brunette, 30-year-old Cecilia Henderson Hornberg Ludwig, with the expressive eyes who was just packing to leave second husband Alvin Ludwig. On the day she was hopefully rendered unconscious, possibly by a potato masher, had accelerant poured on her, set a fire, and murdered in the upstairs closet of the front bedroom of their home, hubby Alvin Ludwig tried to commit suicide, immediately following, cutting his wrists, calves, doing serious injury to himself. Neighbors, seeing smoke and fire, rushed to assist, carrying bleeding Alvin to safety, searching for other family members, namely his wife Cecilia, her sister Jean, and Jean's son Charlie, who was only seven and not in school. Firemen discovered Cecilia's body, horribly charred, and the murder-homicide investigation began. We'd finished opening arguments in the first-degree murder trial of Alvin Ludwig, with the prosecutor, Joseph Talbot, ready to present his first witness to the jury. Talbot calls Fred Young, the childhood friend of Cecilia and Jean's, who ran into the two women outside his boarding house the night of the murder, which occurred on September 25, 1906. Fred Young walked with the ladies back to the Ludwig home, which wasn't unusual as he'd been a frequent guest. Young witnessed the arguments between Cecilia and Alvin, establishing to the jury that the marriage was seriously troubled. 
There was also back and forth between an event that occurred during the walk, trying to establish if the brick that had been thrown at Cecilia could have been thrown by Albin, who was also out that night trying to find their dog. Cecilia had mentioned to Fred Young that she heard their dog barking just after the brick had struck her on her hip. Had Albin thrown it at her? Oddly, Fred was never asked if he'd seen Alvin in the vicinity when the brick was thrown. Hmm. Fred was also asked to relate the conversation Cecilia and Alvin had had when they arrived at her home. Alvin wanted to know where she had been, accusing her of going further than she admitted, with Cecilia finally giving in and agreeing. Alvin accused her of speaking to a bridgeman, a man who worked on the bridge, obviously, with Cecilia replying, quote, What of that? End quote. Incensed, Alvin retorted quote, that she was not going running around with a bridgeman, end quote, kicking off more arguing, while Alvin used profanity and cursed her. Understand, neither spouse is a saint. They are both flawed human beings. Fred, Jean, Cecilia, and Alvin then left to go find Jean's children, and the arguing erupted again, testified Young. This time, Cecilia complained to Alvin that he was just so mean to her. Cecilia said she would just get her clothes and leave. Alvin responded saying, quote, Before she would leave, he would burn them up, and he said she could just go and everything would be settled on the morrow. End quote. He'd burn them up? Settled tomorrow, huh? Well, like when he set her on fire killing her the next day? Is that really what he was thinking? Is that an admission of premeditation? Did the jury think so is really the question. On cross-examination from defense attorney Parker, he asked about Fred Young's relationship with both the sisters. Young, a widower, admitted to have come calling about six times, but specified that he was there to visit Mrs. Jean Ellsworth and her children, not Cecilia. While Fred went out in evening walks with Jean, who he did know was married, he was not going out with Cecilia. Their meetup that night was happenstance. It hadn't been a rendezvous of any sort. Now, Prosecutor Talbert had really been trying to show that Fred and Cecilia had some kind of improper relationship, but Young denied it firmly and consistently. Parker asked about the fellow, the so-called Bridgman, named Ackerman, who had been walking with Cecilia and Jean. Had Ackerman met Cecilia before? Young didn't know, but apparently from what he'd heard afterward, this was the first time that Ackerman met Cecilia. He had met Mrs. Ellsworth prior. Shifting gears, Parker walked him through the conversation that night in detail, focusing on Albin and Cecilia separating. Young told the jury Cecilia said Albin was mean to her, accusing her of so many things she would never do. It seemed Cecilia couldn't comb her hair or change her clothes unless he accused her of expecting someone. Tomorrow, she would pack her things and leave. Alvin said she couldn't take anything unless the court allowed it, but Cecilia remained adamant. She would pack her things and leave the next day. Fred testified that divorce was never discussed, only packing and leaving. And Alvin said that, quote, everything would be settled tomorrow, end quote. What did Alvin mean by that? That's for the jury to figure out. During redirect, Talbot asked Young what he had seen on the bed in the Ludwig home when he visited the murder scene the next day after the crime. Young had gone to the house with police to help Jean retrieve her trunk. He stated, quote, 
Well, the bedding was all torn around upside down and bunches of Mrs. Ludwig's hair tangled up in the covers and around the room. There was hair in the bedclothes or on the bed or in one or two small bunches of hair on the floor, end quote. Now it was Parker's turn to recross Young, who admitted that water had been sprayed into the room by firemen, that people had been in and out of the house nosing around, including one or two strangers. Alvin Ludwig might not necessarily be responsible for Cecilia's hair being where Young saw it 24 hours after the murder. So the crime scene was not secured by 21st century standards in 1906, a critical factor. But wait a second. Cecilia didn't sleep in that room with Alvin. She shared a room with Jean. Remember murder bookies? So that sounds like a lot of hair to be tossed around in a room that Cecilia did not occupy. Once again, Talbot asked Young about the brick-throwing incident, trying to get him to say that Alvin was jealous and responded physically by attacking Cecilia the night before her death. Only Fred did the opposite, stating that Alvin repeatedly denied he'd thrown the brick at Cecilia. Here is the state's own witness not making the point on the stand. Not good, Mr. Prosecutor. I do, however, think his testimony shows that Alvin was fixated on Cecilia's comings and goings. Whether she was cheating on him or not, the guy certainly was obsessed with anyone she ran into, spoke to, or walked down the street with. Now, you'd think Talbot would call Jean Ellsworth, the next witness, to corroborate Young's testimony, plus what she observed living in the Ludwig home that summer, seeing the tension between husband and wife increasing exponentially, and she was with Cecilia when they walked to Young's boarding house with the Bridgman Ackerman, and Jean was there the morning of the murder and saw Alvin and Cecilia arguing, so Jean was a font of information, right? But Jean was missing. Jean Henderson Ellsworth might have been hiding at her parents' farm in Kingsbury, or she might be back in Nevada with her husband, but she was definitely not available to testify. And I am utterly appalled. Her sister is murdered, most foully, and she just blips off the radar? What the hell, Jean? I just can't understand it, okay? It boggles my mind that she's just a no-show. I know her mother, Mrs. Christina Henderson, was in town, and she was caring for Cecilia's children, who had just lost their mother. Albin's mother and brother were present for the entire trial, with the case taking its toll on Eva Ludwig, who was 69, and appeared much older. She wept bitterly when Alvin was brought into the court, according to the press report. Mishawaka police officer James Anderson would confirm that Alvin had been on the corner of Main and Second Streets the evening before the murder because he and Alvin had spoken. The officer said that Alvin approached him and was asking if he knew the two ladies standing on the northwest corner. Officer Anderson said he did. James Anderson went to confirm that the man was with Jean and Cecilia. Alvin said that they'd left the house and left him with the kids, but he decided to follow them, and now they were talking to a man. Alvin wanted the officer to bear witness, saying, quote, I'm going to put a stop to that, and if anything happens, I want you to remember it, end quote. All right, so Alvin has his nose at a joint over this, without question. Later, the defense would recall James Anderson, inquiring about Alvin's vomit. Remember that Alvin had been nauseous and he had vomited at the murder site. 
The officer described it as being a greasy, pale red color. Inside, Albin's vomit next to the sofa was the same consistency when compared to the outside sample. Only now, he added, that it had some partially digested food plus some green tones. Sorry, I know that's disgusting. He added that Albin had opened one eye, with the prosecutor implying that Albin was more aware of what was happening around him than he was letting on. And why would Albin be pretending to be unconscious, hmm? Not wanting to answer any questions, maybe? From the string of witnesses called next, it's clear that Talbot was creating a timeline, calling each in chronological order. A neighborhood friend of Albin's, Marcellus Gaze, testified that he was aware of the troubles between the couple and told Alvin in his place he would pack up and leave. But Alvin said he loved his wife and he couldn't do that and that he'd put an end to their troubles. Hmm, what does that mean? It's sounding more and more like a, if I can't have her, no one can have her case to me. What do you think, Marta Burgess? Lester Gittry, the druggist for the Northside Drugstore, was up next confirming Albin bought brandy between 11 o'clock and noon. Milton E. Robbins, the grocer, saw Ludwig at the store around noon, where he purchased two gallons of gasoline. Then came witnesses who were at their homes, and the craftsmen who were at their jobs in the neighborhood when the fire broke out. Painter David Hull was working on the cottage right down the street. Hull testified that about 2 p.m., while getting a bucket of water, he'd noticed Albin sitting on the porch. Within five minutes, a woman shouted that the Ludwig house was on fire. Hull raced over, seeing smoke, and tried to get in the front door, but the door was locked. He ran back to the cottage, grabbed a ladder, and returned, putting it up on the west side of the Ludwig home. A man Hull didn't know climbed up, going in the upper window, and Hull followed, helping to bring Ludwig out onto the porch roof and to the ground. Hull then went through the kitchen door, where, quote, a good many folks were around, end quote, to see if anyone was injured inside. The fire chief stopped him from entering the upper front bedroom, but Hull said he saw blood on the walls and pooled on the floor. Was it Cecilia's? Albin's? Did the jury infer that it was? Next-door neighbor Catherine Brand's testimony confirmed that Albin went to get the slop jar somewhere between noon and 1 p.m., Remember, that was used for depositing your night soil in your home before they had proper bathrooms. Catherine Brand smells smoke. She noticed it coming from the windows, rushing to the home of another neighbor, Mrs. Charles Patterson. She went to report the fire on Patterson's telephone. It's hard to think of a world where telephones were a rare commodity in a town. Catherine also saw a little boy, referring to Charlie Ellsworth, who was at the back door. The prosecution's key witness, Alfred Bicey, the fire chief of Mishawaka, came into a hushed courthouse. Talbot handled this line of questioning personally. Bicey said the fire alarm was received around 1.58 p.m. The hook and ladder truck arrived right after the hose wagon. These are types of fire vehicles in the day. Bicey kicked the front door open, went inside up to the front room, meeting with two firemen who'd already entered through the window. These men had already used the fire extinguisher and laid the hose by the window, and Bicey called for those below to turn on the water. By now he realized the fire wasn't in the room, but in the closet. He turned the nozzle towards the roof where the fire was burning a hole, putting it out, 
and then discovered there was a person in the closet. Someone was dead. It was now his duty to keep everybody out of the house. Then, the million-dollar question. Describe to the jury what you saw in the closet, Talbot asked Bicey. Quote, she lay right inside, right across the front of the door. She was all up in a cramped position, end quote. The details were painful to hear. She wasn't wearing any clothing, just a partly consumed corset with some stays. The stays were iron, so they hadn't been destroyed. Talbot asked, quote, and what was the condition of her flesh? End quote. Bicey answered, well, sir, as near as I could tell you, her flesh looked like a real hard-baked chicken. Bicey stated that Cecilia was most certainly dead. Ooh, that's tough. Wow. While the trial transcript and news account do not say whether or not this elicited a gasp, I sure gasped when I read this in the book. The South Bend Daily reported what Bicey said indirectly, writing, quote, the body was burned almost to a crisp, end quote, while the competition, the South Bend Tribune wrote, quote, the body had the appearance of having been baked, end quote. I'm not sure that was much better, to be honest. Uh, the word gruesome comes to mind, no matter how you spell it, gruesome. Talbot also probed Bicey about finding the tin can in the closet, which he described as a baking powder can. He picked it up and brought it out, and it had an oily appearance. He had given it to the chief of police. Bicey said it smelled as if there were kerosene in the can. Bicey also saw the razor on the floor along with blood, pretty sure that Alvin had used that on himself in his attempted suicide. Firefighter William C. Hose. Yeah, that's the perfect name for a fireman, isn't it? He was a call man, which meant he did not sleep at the firehouse like the bunk men did. My brother, my dad, and my grandfather were all bunkmen in Engine 3. Great history, great respect for these brave first responders. Anyway, Hose arrived when Alvin was being carried down the ladder to the first floor. As they fought the fire upstairs, he saw it coming through a crack over the closet door. But before he could open the door, he had to move a rocking chair and other obstacles that had been piled up in front of it. Hold on there. Full stop. Obstacles? Holy shit. Obstacles had been placed in front of the closet door, like Cecilia was barricaded inside the closet. Why would you set up a barricade if she was unconscious? Or was she unconscious? Oh, God, I am just sick thinking about it. Oh, God. All right. Hose continued testifying, saying that, quote, we put the fire out, and then I saw a woman lying in the closet, and she was dead, end quote. Now, he is the first witness to mention obstacles, but he also mentions he saw blood on the closet door, around the doorknob, and the casing down at the bottom. Defense attorney W.G. Graybill questioned his first witness, asking Hose to describe the fire, which, quote, was all over the closet, even scorching a dresser just north of the closet door, end quote. That testimony from Hose was a showstopper for me. It just, it just made it all that much worse. And I'm not seeing how that cross-examination helped Alvin, not at all, W.G. That afternoon, Mishawaka's physician, C.A. Dresch, came to the stand. 
He had examined Ludwig in the yard and described his injuries to the jury. Quote, he was cut across both wrists and also the calves of both legs and the neck. The cut in the neck was in front and went around the skin to the cartilage. The wrist was cut both through. The cuts in the calves were between the ankle and the knee. One was considerably deeper than the other. I don't think either was to the bone, end quote. On cross-examination, Dr. Dresch elucidated which cuts were superficial versus more serious. The wrists were skin deep. The one calf was three inches deep and much more worrisome. Dr. Dresch believes Alvin was conscious because he resisted the doctor's attempt to open his eyelids with his fingers, which unconscious people do not do. Had he inspected Alvin's mouth? No, no, he couldn't say whether it was blistered, which may have proven if Alvin had or had not been poisoned. Dr. Dresch saw that Alvin had vomited up and that there had been no blood in it. Neighbor Emma Refschneider, who lived a short distance away on Christiane Street, testified the night before the murder she overheard one woman and two men arguing outside. A man said, quote, Was I over town with you, Fred, last night? A man replied, No. Then a woman said, You're a goddamn liar, end quote. She didn't recognize the voices, but assumed they were Albin and neighbor Fred Metzler. I guess it could have been Fred Young, because we know he was there, and was definitely one of the Freds. Then Emma said she heard a lady screaming for help, and a court erupted in hushed whispers. What? Was that a very alive Cecilia Ludwig screaming? On cross-examination, Emma cleared this up, saying, quote, She heard a number of voices crying, fire, and she didn't hear anything else. Okay, so heart can start beating again. Oh, my God. Alice McNabb followed Emma to the stand, another neighbor, and told how she heard screaming. Living behind the Ludwig home with no obvious obstructions, there's only a vacant lot between them. She said, Alice, I went on my back porch because a little girl called me. The screaming I heard lasted two or three minutes. That screaming could have been Cecilia's sister, Jean Ellsworth's daughter, Lucy. You remember, Lucy ran to the neighbor's home to get help, probably hysterical after hearing the final fatal quarrel between Uncle Alvin and Aunt Cecilia, and then the fire breaking out. Recall, their mother, Jean, had gone to the depot to arrange for the trunks to be picked up, so Lucy's mom wasn't there. While there were other witnesses, the final one of the day was St. Joseph's County Coroner, Henry C. Holsendorf, who is also a surgeon. When he arrived at the Ludwig house about 2 p.m., the place was burning and in confusion. Holsendorf went upstairs to the front bedroom, to the closet where he noted Cecilia's body, which was charred and burning. His description matched that of Fire Chief Bices. Holsendorf also noticed a partially burned potato masher, the first time it had come up in trial as a possible weapon. Talbot presented the burnt potato masher to the jury as State Exhibit A. Holsendorf confirmed that a can found in proximity to Cecilia's body had recently contained kerosene. His main testimony, however, was on Cecilia's postmortem and cause of death, which was established as being from shock from burning all over her body. Later, Dr. Holsendorf was recalled to the stand and questioned about Cecilia's head wound. He said it was through all three layers of the scalp, 
but not such that would cause death. Defense attorney Parker handed a wire hook, the kind screwed into a wall for hanging clothes, asking Holzendorf to examine the front end, and Parker asked, and if the head were to come into contact with the hook with sufficient force, the wound would indicate that it might have been made by that? End quote. And Holzendorf agreed. Yes, yes, that was possible. Now, this is an important positive turn in the case. Parker had a key witness confirm a portion of Alvin's alternative scenario explanation of what had happened the day of Cecilia's murder. It was possible Alvin hadn't hit her with the potato masher. So how did the masher wind up in a bedroom closet upstairs? We don't know. So while day one of the trial had gone well, it painted a still strong circumstantial evidence case. However, no one had placed Alvin Ludwig at the precise crime scene prior to the discovery of Cecilia's charred body and Alvin's bloody body. Alvin had been seen sitting on his porch and entering his house. Nobody had actually heard that afternoon's quarrel. No one saw who carried the potato masher upstairs. No one witnessed what happened in the closet. Jean being there may have shed light on a lot of this, but she was missing, a weak point for both sides. But still, with the talk of obstacles blocking the closet door, few of the townsfolk attending the trial, largely ladies, were giving Albin the benefit of the doubt. In the news coverage, Sonsnecki writes that it was reported that the, quote, murderer was given little sympathy and the general consensus of opinion was that if he gets his just desserts, he will dangle at the end of a rope, end quote. Hello, and welcome to the jury room. I'm your host, Kevin, and I will be covering anything true crime, from serial killers to cold cases and everything in between. The Jury Room Podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow anywhere you can. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Day two of the murder trial. Albin's best friend, neighbor Fred Metzler, took the stand describing how he was having dinner about noon when Alvin came in, telling him that he was going to kill himself, that Cecilia was driving him crazy. Fred began to talk him out of it, with Alvin insisting that if he left her, Cecilia would make him support her. They debated whether or not this was actually the case, but Alvin insisted that Cecilia had said so. Fred advised him to go see a lawyer, suggesting his cousin, Charlie Metzler. Alvin pulled out the bottle. Fred thought it was whiskey and they drank about half of it. They agreed to go see a lawyer that evening without Cecilia knowing, because Cecilia didn't like Fred and didn't want him to have anything to do with Alvin. Fred proposed that they leave separately, and then they'd meet up later. Fred admitted while he and Alvin were good friends, he and Cecilia were not on speaking terms. They parted as Fred had to go back to work, and he didn't see Alvin until after the accident. Interesting that Fred calls Cecilia's murder an accident. Had the jury noted that? 
Metzler admitted on cross-examination that he had seen Albin, Cecilia, Jean, and Fred Young the night before going into the Ludwig house, but he, quote, had no talk with them, end quote. Police Chief Jarrett testified about the condition of the kitchen, that there were four dinner plates on the table, quote, some of the dinner was left on it, boiled beef, potatoes, butter, and such as that, end quote, but that one of the plates looked untouched. He confirmed that Alvin had been carried inside and placed on the sofa, his limbs wrapped in bandages. Jarrett remarked that his hair and eyebrows looked singed. Upstairs, Jarrett saw Officer Lorne Faust find the bloody razor, while he also noticed a bottle of iodine and glycerin on a small dresser in Jean's room, not in the front bedroom. Recall that Cecilia did share Jean's room, not her husband's. Jarrett started his investigation, and he found a two-gallon can of gasoline in the summer kitchen, which was missing about a pint, maybe a quart, from the can. Chief Jarrett found bloodstains on the door casings there, too. Had Alvin gone out there after cutting himself? I mean, why would he do that? Also remember, a lot of people had come and gone, seeking help, seeking to rescue from pure curiosity, so the crime scene was hardly secured. So any of them could have touched the outside summer kitchen door after getting blood on him or herself. If fingerprint technology had only been available, but it was not. Dr. Charles C. Stroop, a Mishawaka physician who had assisted in the postmortem, described Cecilia's head injury as being caused by a blunt instrument. He too agreed that the jagged wound could have been caused by her head striking the point of the hook. A twofer now, that's a definite victory for the defense. So, was it possible Cecilia had fallen against the hook in the closet rather than being struck by the potato masher by Alvin? But the head wound did not cause her death, so this is still a shallow victory. Regarding the cause of death, Dr. Stroop testified, quote, The heat resulting from the fire causes an overstimulation of the nerves in the skin, and this overstimulation causes an irritation of the nerves throughout the body. This brings on an overstimulation of the nerves of the heart, which stimulation brings about a paralysis of the heart, end quote. I truly hope this happens rapidly and that she went unconscious. I know from studying the Protestant Reformation, the burning of heretics, that it can be quick, breathing in noxious foods, searing the lungs. So I have to pray that Cecilia was unconscious in, in microseconds. It's just really too awful to be thinking about it. An interesting turn came in the testimony of the state's final witness, Robert F. Schellenberg, who lived a few blocks away. He entered the Ludwig house seeking to find Cecilia, who had not yet been located. He went into the cellar and saw a bunch of papers lying on a shelf at the base of the cellar window, smoldering. Schellenberger put the papers out. Well, this was a surprise to just about everyone because he hadn't mentioned it before taking the stand. All right, so wait, who set the papers on fire two stories below the blazing closet where Cecilia Ludwig was burned to death? How did that happen? Had the bloodstains police chief Jarrett found on the door casing leading to the summer kitchen had anything to do with the burning papers in the basement? Who had tracked the blood all over and who set the papers on fire? All right, April 25th, 1907, the South Bend Daily Times article reads, Wife the Aggressor, referring to the defense's opening statement. 
To paraphrase, attorney Samuel Parker reviewed the stresses that had been gnawing at the marriage, making it unpleasant, and this is largely because Mrs. Ludwig did not conduct herself as a good woman should, persisting in frequenting the company of other men and being unfaithful. Several times she had threatened Alvin's life, and on at least one occasion she said she would poison him. The arrival of Cecilia's sister, Mrs. Jean Ellsworth, was nice at first, but then the women began to conduct themselves poorly. The added expense of three more people living with the Ludwigs also added to the tension. On the day of the tragedy, it was agreed that both Jean and Cecilia were leaving, and that she and Alvin were separating. Alvin Ludwig had consulted an attorney about divorcing, but he still maintained a deep regard and affection for his wife. Now that kind of meshes with my theory, thank you very much Mr. Parker, and you'll hear more about my theory of what drove Alvin in Second Cast, Episode 32, Cecilia's Curse on the Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of a Jealous Husband. Okay, Alvin's older brother, Gustav Ludwig, was the first defense witness called. On hearing that his sister-in-law had died, Gustav immediately left Elkhart and went to Mishawaka to see Alvin at the hospital. So, so much for the reports that the Ludwigs had abandoned Alvin. Gustav spent an hour with Alvin, who really didn't recognize Gustav at all. He returned four days later, and Alvin was conscious and alert. The Sunday after Cecilia's death, Gustav, his wife Minnie, Police Chief Jarrett, and Mrs. Jarrett went to the Ludwig home. Quote, We examined the dining room table, the upstairs, the bed clothing, and the bedroom where Mrs. Ellsworth had slept, end quote. Gustav, too, found the bottle of iodine and glycerin that others had described in Jean's room. Gustav didn't clean out the closet that day, but he and his wife proceeded to give part of Alvin's possessions away, furniture included, not expecting him to return home. A little foreshadowing there. Later, on cleaning out the closet with a shovel and basket, quote, among the burned stuff, he found parts of a lamp I saved the burner and a few pieces of glass, end quote, testified Gustav. Parker showed these pieces to Gustav, who indicated that these were them. Gustav also referenced a shelf in the closet that had 15 to 20 jelly glasses on them. The defense was implying that the kerosene can may have fallen from the shelf instead of being carried by Alvin with the intent to burn his wife's body. After a few more witnesses who addressed the common arguing of Cecilia and Alvin, the star witness took the stand, Alvin Ludwig himself. A relatively rare move since all defendants have the right to remain silent, most defense attorneys do not opt for them to testify. Though recently we did see Kyle Rittenhouse take the stand in his Wisconsin murder trial, as well as in the Ahmaud Arbery murder trial, where Travis McMichael testified so the jury could hear from him directly. Rittenhouse was found to have been defending himself and was acquitted, while in the Arbery case, all three defendants were found guilty. Two very, very different cases, but good examples of this rare event in our criminal justice system. Afterward, there's always a debate whether this was a plus or minus for the defense, as it does open the defendant up to cross-examination by the prosecution. Sometimes, the benefits are seen to outweigh the negatives. In this trial, Alvin Ludwig takes the stand. After reviewing the usual questions establishing Alvin's identity, 
how long he and Cecilia had been married, about five years, yada, yada, yada. The defense attorney, Parker, got into it. Had Cecilia made threats against him? Talbot objected and a legal battle royal occurs as he and Parker made their arguments to the bench as to whether this testimony was relevant to Alvin's killing of Cecilia. Judge Funk allowed it. Alvin testified that Cecilia had made threats against his life. She and Jean had been going out every day as Alvin complained. Six weeks prior to her death, Cecilia had said to him, quote, that she would give me something that I would never move again, end quote. Two weeks later, her next threat came after another excursion. Again, Cecilia had come home late and wanted to go out again to Laporte the next day. Alvin told her he couldn't afford that, saying, quote, she said she would knock my goddamn head off one of these days, end quote. The Sunday before her death came Cecilia's next threat against Alvin. While he thought it would be appropriate for his wife to go out, quote, three times a week and every night if she wanted with me, and all day Sunday if she wanted to, end quote, he totally objected to Cecilia, quote, going out every day and never intending to go out with me, end quote. Parker asked him to explain her going out with other men to the jury. Talbot objected because Alvin could only speak to what he himself knows, as hearsay was not permitted. Alvin didn't wait for the judge. He replied testily to Talbot directly. I do know, with Judge Funk overruling Talbot again. Alvin continued saying, Cecilia, quote, used to go out and meet men in South Bend while I would be working, end quote. Again, Talbot objected, saying it was hearsay, and was overruled. Parker could, quote, show that Cecilia's conduct in that respect was not transitory, that it was habitual, and that it began some time ago and continued, and that all of that had its influence on this tragedy, end quote. So Ludwig was permitted to tell his story of Cecilia conducting herself in a way unacceptable for married, decent women, committing adultery, and cavorting with men. Quote, I caught her in the closet of the bedroom with one of the boarders on the 15th day of August, 1903, half past seven in the morning when she thought I was at work, end quote. Talbot objected to the last part, and the thought I was at work part was stricken from the record. But the jury had heard it, hadn't they? Ludwig also saw her with a manning tea man, one of those traveling salesmen who sold tea door-to-door, and he was sitting on Cecilia's lap. In another incident, Alvin saw her with a man coming from South Bend in a buggy. When he asked Cecilia about this, she said she'd been with another lady. Alvin had not seen her with another lady. It was a man, he was sure of it. And the night before Cecilia's death, he saw her and Jean in downtown Mishawaka with the bridge man Ackerman walking north. Alvin denied seeing the sisters in front of Fred Young's boarding house, and he still denied throwing the brick at the trio. With defense attorney Parker, Alvin retraced his steps, leaving his house around 7 p.m. to look for his dog at Four Corners in Mishawaka. He first noticed Cecilia and Jean at the Landis Meat Market, and they were by themselves. Then he went to Graham's Northside Drugstore, where Cecilia had a bottle refilled. Earlier, she had asked him for an empty bottle to get some iodine and glycerin. Alvin had rinsed the bottle and given it to her. Parker gave him the bottle marked with a skull labeled poison. Was this the bottle? 
Albin examined it and agreed it was the same. Next, Albin testified that while he was watching Cecilia and Jean, or stalking might be a better term, Cecilia met a man on the corner of 2nd and Main. Quote, my wife called out to him to one side, end quote, indicating Cecilia, not Jean, was more actively engaging Bridgman Ackerman. So this differs from Fred Young's testimony that Ackerman was into Jean and certainly gives us insight into what Albin was thinking. His wife was out again with some man. I think Fred Young is a little bit more objective than Albin. Albin also confirmed that he had spoken to the police officer while watching Cecilia and Jean, but didn't talk about their conversation. Later, Albin asked who the man was that she had been speaking with. Both Jean and Cecilia called Albin a goddamn liar. Albin said he had the proofs that Officer James Anderson had seen him too. I have to confess I'm not completely comfortable with all this revealing Cecilia's intimate meetings with men. It really feels a lot like victim bashing since she's not here to defend herself. If she even needs to defend herself in my 21st century mindset and all. But I am trying to retain the context that this is taking place in the early 1900s with the different standards of what is socially acceptable and what is not. It does, however, tell us the state of affairs between the couple, no pun intended, which is certainly relevant to the motive of murder trial. So this is where I commend Garris's neck for addressing this head-on and not ducking the issue. So good for him, because it is a different time. The Morning of the Murder Alvin tells us what happened the morning of Cecilia's death, and now we are into the thick of it. Alvin did not go to work that day, so he rose around 9 a.m. Cecilia and Jean were already up, with Jean packing her trunk. Cecilia was in need of a trunk to pack her things, and Albin offered, quote, I will give you mine if you want one, but you are welcome to stay if you want to, end quote. He was holding out this last hope that Cecilia wouldn't go, and that was a fail. Cecilia indicated she wanted the trunk and all of Albin's property. She'd have all or none. Albin replied, quote, I want to talk in peace with you if you want to go and go like you have been doing for two weeks, I will keep up the property, and you're welcome to come back. If not, I shall give up the property and not make any more payments. End quote. Cecilia said, I'm going for good, Alvin. And Alvin replied, Very well, I will give up the property. Alvin suggesting he's stopping payments and he'll lose the property, house, the furniture, the whole thing. But Cecilia was clear. Not even threats to forfeit the furniture or property was making a dent, and Albin knew it was over for good. He read the newspaper for a bit, and Cecilia asked him to buy some gasoline for the cook stove. Agreeing, Albin left a little after 11 for the grocery store, where he says he bought the two gallons. Stopping at the drugstore, he picked up a half pint of brandy to make the cough medicine for himself. Arriving back home, he puts a little gasoline in the tank of the cook stove, unable to fill it because Cecilia wanted to finish the dinner. He left to go try to sell the dog since they were breaking up, spoke with neighbor Anna Burkhart, who had testified earlier that she really didn't want a dog at this point. Returning, Albin again raises the issue of Cecilia speaking with the Bridgman the other night. Oh my God, the guy won't let it go. 
This clearly irritates him, and it is still on his mind. He says, quote, I told her she might as well tell me who the man was, that young Mr. Patterson had told me she talked with a man, end quote. As he'd spoken to Patterson when he went to fetch the gasoline, Cecilia claimed that Patterson, quote, was the son of a bitch liar, end quote, and Cecilia was done with being interrogated by Alvin. On a mission to prove himself right, Ludwig left to go see young Mr. Patterson at his home, but he wasn't back yet from the store. Alvin spoke with old gentleman, Mr. Charles Patterson. So Alvin is not letting this go, not for a second. He is going to try to lock this thing down and prove that he has witnesses that Cecilia was speaking to a bridge man. This thing is festering inside him. I'm going home. Dinner is now ready. The table is set for four. Cecilia, Jean's two kids, and Alvin. Jean is leaving to go hire the livery just after 11 a.m. They all eat except for Alvin because his stomach is still upset. Cecilia had given Alvin a cup of coffee in the summer kitchen that had that weird taste to it, the sour bitter taste. He goes and he lies down in the lounge on a backless sofa with a headrest in the room opposite the dining room. The kids finish eating. They go out to play on the front porch. About 10 minutes after drinking the coffee, Alvin is feeling miserable. He wants to throw up. He wanted to defecate, but he couldn't do that either. He goes to fetch the slop jar, sees the neighbor Mrs. Brand. They bow to each other. He goes upstairs to the front room and puts the slop jar in its regular place in the closet. Now, every point Alvin has testified to has been corroborated by previous witnesses, neighbors, storekeepers, Fred Young. Alvin is being truthful so far. But from this point on, there is only one witness to what occurred, and that is Alvin. He's the only one left alive because the other witness, Cecilia, is dead. So Alvin Ludwig describes what happens next. He laid across the bed. After about 10 minutes, he got up to look at that life insurance policy that had Cecilia as his beneficiary. It wasn't in the dresser where it was usually kept. So he looks in the closet and then starts to look in Cecilia's trunk where she had been packing for departure. The closet is dark, having no windows, so he went to the dresser to get the kerosene lamp lighting it and starts to search for the policy. Cecilia returns asking, quote, Have you made up your mind to give me all the stuff? End quote. Albin offers her half the property. Cecilia says, You son of a bitch, I'll fix you anyhow. And Alvin claims that Cecilia hauled off with the potato masher, meaning that she swung it at him. Getting to his feet, Alvin warded off the blow, got Cecilia by the throat, and held her against the wall. When, quote, when I let loose, she kind of clawed me, and when I let loose, she went down, end quote. And then Alvin's memory fails, it all fading to black. I, I don't recall anything after that, the shock, he says. Do you remember the fire? Alvin says, I do not. Do you take any kerosene or gasoline up there into that closet? Alvin says, I did not. It was the defense's contention that the kerosene lamp was already there, and Alvin hadn't brought any fuel up there with him. Alvin told the jury he awoke in the hospital. Did he intend to kill Cecilia? He says, I did not. Why seize and hold her at all? He says, self-defense. 
I thought it would be my last, and I just wanted to keep her from it, that's all. Had Alvin been drinking? This is not a drop. He had given a bottle of brandy to his friend, Fred Metzler, who drank it. Parker's last series of questions established that Cecilia was physically larger than Alvin, three inches taller and 168 pounds, broad-shouldered, heavy bones, big heavy bones. And Alvin also said that he loved his wife as much as any man could. So Alvin is painted as a patient, hard-working husband with a difficult wife, jealous of his wife's inappropriate behavior, and not unreasonably so. He's a good neighbor and a good friend. Cecilia is a foul-mouthed, big-boned, loose woman who doesn't appreciate her husband, tried to poison him, attacked him with a potato masher, provoking his response. And if the jury got the case right now, would they or would they not convict? Was there reasonable doubt? What do you think, murder bookies? State Attorney Joseph Talbot had another version of events leading up to September 25, 1906. And he wants to share that with the jury. So beginning cross-examination, Joseph Talbot got Alvin to admit that he and Fred Metzler had had coffee cocktails that day. And as a former bartender, Alvin was very familiar with alcohol, so he knew that these drinks contained alcohol. His not-a-drop testimony had been a lie. Talbot also reminded Alvin that contrary to his statements, he, Fred Young, Cecilia, and Jean had all talked together in a friendly manner the night before, and Fred Young stayed for dinner. Alvin said, quote, I did not like to have him come and see a married woman, end quote, a comment Judge Funk struck from the record. Had Alvin told the jury everything he'd done the night prior to the tragedy? Yes, said Alvin. But he hadn't, had he? Talbot asked about his visit to Marcellus Gaze, to whom he'd said he was leaving the house and that he would put an end to it. Hadn't he said that? Not in that way, Ludwig said. Well, what did Alvin mean to end? Cecilia's relationships with other men? Hadn't managed to put an end to that so far. Their marriage? He kept saying he didn't want a separation or a divorce, that she was welcome to come back. To end his life? He had said that to Fred and he had tried to put an end to that. Talbot asked him about finding Cecilia with the border in 1903. Wasn't it true that Cecilia had gone back to Kingsbury after the incident, while the border and Ludwig continued to live together in the house, with Alvin cooking for both of them? After Alvin had found him sitting on his wife's lap? Alvin stammered, no, no. Cut off, Talbot didn't give Alvin time to explain, that he'd encountered the boarder in the closet with Cecilia, not sitting on her lap. That guy had been the Manning tea man, not the boarder. Did the jury recall all the salacious details or not? Hmm. They rehashed the Ludwig watching the women the evening before, the sequence of events, who did and who said what to whom, Talbot trying to make Alvin look bad. Alvin insisted that he recalled what happened correctly. They moved on to when Cecilia and Alvin argued the night before when Fred Young was supping with them. Was it 8 o'clock? Was it 8.30? How long did they quarrel? Once again, when Alvin pressed Cecilia to admit she'd been speaking with the Bridgman earlier, she denied it again, and Alvin claimed he just wanted the truth because she had been seen. 
This round ended around 10 p.m. when the subject of separation was addressed, but only modestly. While not definitive, Cecilia had said that she guessed that separation would be the best thing. The day of Cecilia's death was revisited again, pertaining to the question of separation. Talbot asked if Alvin wanted Cecilia to leave him, and Alvin said, I did then, yes. Wait, wait, what? Wait, the guy who loved his wife as much as any man could and wanted her to stay? This response took Talbot and the rest of the courtroom by surprise because it just ran completely counter to all his previous statements so far. An incredulous Talbot was like, what? You did then? So it could have been the English as a second language was a factor here because Albin responded, well, yes, but then he asked to have his response read back to him. So then he clarified with a, quote, I said, if she would not have it any other way. Talbot wanted more clarity. Did you yourself actually want her to leave? Were you opposed to her leaving or anxious to have her go? Albin replied, I was not anxious to have her go. Talbot asked him about seeing his friend, young Charles Patterson, on the way back from the grocery store. Albin asked him if he knew who the man was his wife was out with the night before, and he replied he did not. He is really stuck on this, I'm telling you. I really believe that this is a huge variable that impacted the entire sequence of events, this being the straw that broke the camel's back. I really think it broke Alvin's back. After going home with the gasoline, Alvin went to speak to his closest friend, Fred Metzler, and telling him he was going to kill himself. Alvin said he couldn't swear it, but he may have said it. He couldn't remember whether he had or had not. Talbot circled back to the idea of Cecilia poisoning Alvin and pressed him on drinking the coffee in spite of the sour, bitter taste. Had it occurred to him not to drink it? It had not. After this, Alvin admitted he was sitting downstairs reading for the next 15 minutes or so. That lost time, during which he could have argued with Cecilia, grabbed the potato masher, chased her upstairs, knocked her unconscious with it, realized he needed to finish the job, went downstairs for the slop jar, figuring it would be a handy container for a gasoline to set her body on fire. Or he could have been reading in the chair like he said he was. Talbot tried to get Ludwig to admit that he knew that there was flammable fuel in the closet, but Judge Fink would not allow that line of questioning. Frustrated, Talbot left off there and moved to Alvin's past record of assault, with it being admitted into the record. Now, that did not sound good. So, reading between the lines and whatnot, Alvin had been working at a wool mill when an officer, Faust, that we've mentioned before, also worked there. So, they kind of knew each other by sight, didn't, weren't really friends, but they kind of recognized each other. Alvin was really working to minimize this relationship, though I don't really see an upside to it. Talbot asked, quote, he prevented you, grabbed your hand one day while you started after another fellow with a knife, end quote. And Parker is immediately on his feet objecting to this line of questioning as being wholly immaterial, and if the state intended to bring this up, it should have been under direct examination, not cross-examination. Judge Funk overruled the objection and allowed Ludwig to answer. Quote, he never did, end quote. And he asked, and... Didn't you at that time you were fined for trespass 
go and ask him to swear that you were at another place at that time? Objection again! Parker went crazy. But again, the jury had already heard the unanswered question because this time it was sustained. So Talbot shifts gears and he asks Alvin about purchasing the brandy, going back to the cough syrup. And Ludwig says yes. And he had admitted giving a little drink to his neighbor Fred that morning. That was at the time you told him you were going to kill yourself, Talbot pressed. Alvin claimed memory loss he just couldn't recollect. But guys, this is before he was lying down. This is before the insurance policy. This is before the trunk. This is before the, the closet door. This is be What the heck? This is before all of that happened. Well before this happened. Talbot kept... I'm not buying this one. I am not buying this one. Talbot presses him. But you do recall that you choked your wife. And Alvin agrees to this characterization that he did remember choking Cecilia. But he denied hearing Cecilia screaming. He stuck to his story of grabbing his wife by the throat in self-defense, that she collapsed, and it all goes black. But Talbot did try. How did the bloody handprints get outside the closet door? Alvin knew nothing about it. What about the bloody handprints on the kitchen door leading to the summer kitchen? I do not know, said Alvin. Talbot also asked Alvin if he recalled a time in Eckhart a few years earlier at a dance in Germania Hall before they had moved to Mishawaka when he had Cecilia down on the floor choking her and Sergeant Whiteman had to separate you? Objection, thundered Parker, wholly immaterial to the inquiry. Judge Funk overruled the objection. I never did it, said Alvin. But he had. Yes, he had. Gary addresses the gaps in Alvin's memory directly. Up till now, Alvin's describing in detail how he grabs Cecilia by the throat, she collapses, and then the blank memory. Now he can't recall a serious incident at this dance back in 1903. And this seems a real inconsistency that could be deliberate on his part, which allows the jury to wonder if he's telling the truth. I think he's lying about not recalling the dance incident, admitting he'd previously acted violently against Cecilia, choking her on the floor of a dance three years earlier, would play very poorly in a murder trial where he's admitted grabbing her by the throat. Talbot wanted to know if Alvin ever found the insurance policy. No, he looked in the dresser of the trunk through her clothes, but he did not. Why did he want it? Quote, I didn't intend for her to have the policy and me pay for it when she left me, end quote. Talbot pointed out that he only had to quit paying on the policy to invalidate it. Well, he wanted to turn it over to his mother, Ludwig explained. Oh, that's, that's nice of him. Talbot saved the more damning questions for last, because these would be freshest in the memory of the jury. Quote, do you remember when fighting with Cecilia with the potato masher downstairs, the little girl coming back and running away, end quote. Now, he is taking a wild guess, since there was no testimony actually placing the potato masher in Alvin's hands anywhere in the home. And, of course, Parker is on his feet, objecting, before Ludwig could answer. And the judge was in agreement, and Talbot returns to his chair. Now, Parker redirects, and he's going to try to win the jury to their side one more time. Returning to witness Marcellus Gaze's testimony, 
Parker now allows Alvin to explain his yes and no replies. When Alvin made the comment that he would, quote, make an end of it, he w- was replying to Marcellus's suggestion that he pack up and go separating, not that he was planning to go home and murder Cecilia. Fair. Parker also lets Alvin elaborate on finding Cecilia in a compromising situation with the border that Alvin chose to cohabitate with. Cecilia had gone to Kingsbury. Alvin kept the border man with him in Mishawakwa to keep him from going to Kingsbury too, not because he had some friendship with him. Alvin also sought to clarify his conversation with the police officer James Anderson the night before. It was Alvin's intention for Mr. Anderson to remember what he'd seen, Cecilia and Jean speaking to the man, because he might need a witness since Cecilia always called Alvin an SOB liar, and Alvin knew she was out with the bridgeman, and he was right. The most important thing for Alvin is being right. It's called being a right fighter. Cecilia was dead. He's on trial for his life. But it is critically important that everyone know he is right about her being out with that bridgeman. He has to be right. This guy cannot see the forest through the trees. Parker also asked him to explain what he had said to Police Chief Jarrett about oil being used to clean clothes. Alvin said, oh yeah, yeah. And he clarified that he had told Police Chief Jarrett that his mother-in-law, Christina Henderson, had made some remark about oil and fire to him. He says, quote, I know nothing about the oil except my wife spoke in the forenoon about taking her black shirts taking out spots, which she always did with gasoline, end quote. Had this caused a flashover in the closet once the fire began, having shirts with gasoline soaked in them? Don't know. Parker also tries to raise the issue of whether Cecilia's health contributed to her demise, a weak heart. Facing an obstacle course of objections by Talbot, Eventually, Albin is able to testify that Cecilia had had some issues with her heart and that he'd, on occasion, had to open the windows so that she could breathe, which sounds a little bit like asthma to me. However, this was stricken from the record, even though the jury heard it, which certainly figured out that a physical ailment may have contributed to Cecilia's death, even though it wasn't listed as a cause of death on her death certificate. But Parker lets the issue drop. Next, Talbot is up at bat. Had Ludwig discussed the lamp flame as being the origins of the fire in his conversation with Jared or Cecilia's mother while at the hospital? He said no. He boldly asked if this occurred after Alvin's brother Gustav's testimony about finding the broken lamp when he was cleaning out the house. Objection, went Parker. Making Alvin look like a liar manipulator was accomplished, however. You know, it is amazing what can be projected to a jury through questions not answered and not allowed. Amazing. But Alvin's story was the focal point, as it always is when a defendant opts to testify. The South Bend Daily Times would describe Alvin's three-hour testimony as a victory for the defense although he was, quote, subjected to the severest kind of crossfire on the part of the prosecution, efforts were made by the state to confuse him, but with little success. 
several impeaching questions were propounded to him, all of which he emphatically denied, end quote. The Mishawakwa Enterprise wasn't as impressed, calling Alvin's testimony a, quote, queerly concocted story of the affair, end quote. Ultimately, only the jury's opinion mattered. And that pretty much wrapped up the defense, though a few more witnesses would be called to testify. A defense witness confirmed that she heard Cecilia threaten Albin with poisoning, beating him with a chair, and that Albin did not make threats against her, not replying. Another said he had gone into the basement, searching as someone had said there were women and children in the house when the house was on fire, and he had not seen smoldering paper, no evidence of fire down there. Old gentleman Charles Patterson confirmed that he had spoken with Ludwig shortly before the fire, very calmly, smelling no liquor on him. Police Chief Jarrett's wife, Grace, came to the stand. She had accompanied Gustav Ludwig to the Ludwig home, where she saw them find the insurance policy in the trunk. Either Cecilia had placed it there, or someone in the five days since the fire, when the crime scene was unsecured, had placed it there. Gustav Ludwig was recalled to the stand to confirm Grace's testimony. It was at this point that Gustav, under Talbot's questioning, that the jury learned of the other insurance policy, a fire and life insurance policy on Cecilia's life. Huh. Really? Alvin would get $250 and Cecilia's daughter would get $250. Oh, snap. A fire? And life insurance policy, huh? That was a crushing blow to the defense, in my opinion. After closing arguments, which mirrored the case they presented to the court, the jury went off to deliberate. Cecilia was not suicidal. She was moving forward with her life, leaving Alvin Ludwig behind. Someone had set the unconscious woman on fire, likely with the aid of kerosene or gasoline. The only person who could have done that is Alvin. The defense that the oil lamp fell on his wife during their argument seemed possible, but weak. He remembered them struggling, but nothing else. And the bad heart? Okay, as a juror, I wouldn't have cared if Cecilia's doctor had a full-blown echocardiogram to show me. The woman died of shock caused by the fire, not a bad heart. Interesting fact. I dare not call it a fun fact. Death by shock caused by burning is called hypovolemic shock. It is defined as the reduction of circulating blood volume. The key word in this definition is volume, not blood. In addition to the blood loss, other causes of fluid loss, such as burns and dehydration, can result in the loss of blood volume. And this is what killed Cecilia. While the heart is the pump that does the circulating, it is the loss of volume that caused Cecilia's death. It took the jury four and a half hours, coming in at 10 p.m. on Friday night, which again seems really weird to me. It's very, very late. Quote, we, the jury, find the defendant, Alvin R. Ludwig, guilty of the murder of second degree, and we find he shall be imprisoned in the state's prison for life. End quote. Boom. Verdict and sentence done. I like that. Alvin Ludwig was spared death by hanging. While not premeditated, the jury found that Alvin had killed Cecilia with malice, and I must say I prefer the speed and efficiency of a verdict 
to the years of delays in sentencing that we have recently seen. In Long Island, for example, mini-cast Let the Games Begin. If you haven't listened to that one, you need to. A shocked Alvin was disappointed, as he thought his worst scenario was guilty by voluntary manslaughter, meaning he'd taken a life defending himself, which held a sentence of 2 to 14 years. A sentence of life actually did not mean life in 1907. Four other felons had been released early from life sentences in the previous 10 years. Parker appealed for a new trial by May of 1907 with a motion that contained 37 separate causes, which was overruled by Judge Funk. And that concludes Episode 31, The Wife-Killing Primer, Part 2, of the Potato Masher Murder by Gary Susnecki. There's a lot more, believe me. Join us next time for second cast, Cecilia's Curse, the Potato Masher Murder, where we will follow the aftermath of the trial and its impact on South Bend, Indiana, Alvin's fate, the Ludwig family, Prosecutor Joseph Talbot and the toll on his life and acquaintances. The fallout is very real. Source material and snack and drink information for the Potato Masher Trilogy are found on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. And my choice for our next book is The Bike Path Killer by Mackie Becker and Michael Beebe. The Bike Path Killer terrorized Buffalo, New York area for 14 years, mercilessly raping and killing his prey, and then eluding law enforcement at every turn. And then... He seemed to vanish. Was he done? Locked up? Dead? Read along with me and cuddle up because this is a page turner that left me incredibly uneasy. Oh my God, what a story. And pick up the Potato Masher Murder. Thank you for listening. Please leave a five-star review and buy me a coffee. Yes, I am now on Buy Me a Coffee, Murder Shelf, BKCB site. The link is on my blog. This will really help me grow my podcast and find new murder bookies. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I'd love to hear from you. Follow or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let our episodes pop right into your feed. Until next time, murder bookies, happy reading. Trust your guts. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosina and lyrics by Otto Harbeck.